So just recently, I saw an interview with uh, a current, let me preface this, I am not making a political statement at all this morning. In fact, I will probably not ever make one from this pulpit, okay? So I'm not making a, a statement about politics or politicians per se. I'm making the, uh, I'm going to tell and in, introduce a, a story um, this morning that just happens to believe, be a uh, political figure, okay? Um, but it illustrates one of the one of the issues, one of the problems we have when we come to Genesis chapter three, and indeed when we come to the story, to the message of the Bible. This morning, understanding how Genesis three and understanding the doctrines that are found in Genesis three are so critical to the rest of our faith. I was watching an interview recently with uh, the guy from Fox News. Um, I don't remember his first name, Lutz. He's the guy that does, uh, he does a lot of the various polling and focus groups. He was interviewing a current candidate for president. And he was taking questions from the audience. So the audience members had submitted questions. And so he asked, he was asking this individual various questions. And one of the questions that had come to him was, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And so Chris, I think it's Chris Lutz, he read the question, and the candidate didn't answer the question, and so he asked him again. He pressed him a little, and he said, no, I, I, I really would like for you to answer. The, the person is asking the question, have you ever asked for forgiveness from God? And the individual said, no, I can't say that I have, because I don't have a reason to. If you haven't seen the interview, it's out there. It's, it's, a, it's a full clip. It's not modified. It hadn't been chopped or cut, cut or spliced or anything. That illustrates the core, the heart of the issue of why Genesis 3 is so very important. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read it for you. For you. And um, it's a little long, but that's okay. We're going to read all 24 verses and um, and hopefully get a sense this morning of why Genesis 3 is so critical for us. So let's begin in verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from the, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. 
so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe and painful with painful labor, you will give birth to children and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life and it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we want to pause now. Thank you for your word. Fathers, we come to this passage so very important for us as we learn not only about ourselves, but we learn about you. We pray that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. Would you work in us what is pleasing for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. George McLeod said, So far I have never man." never met a man who wanted to be bad. The mystery of man is that he is bad when he wants to be good. Dwight L. Moody said, I have had more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I know. That begins to get at the heart of the issue. Last week we saw that Adam and Eve lacked the awareness to apprehend all that God had blessed them with. Remember, one of the things that we said was that the evil one came and not only uh, went after their pride, that they wanted to be like God, but he also went after the fact that here they were, they were God's vice regents in the garden, placed there, his gardeners, with absolutely everything before them, and yet they looked away from that to the one tree that God had told them not to eat from, and they said, you're withholding something good from us. And that was one of the angles of attack for Satan as he came to Adam and Eve. This morning we want to talk about the consequences of their actions. Let's begin first with this. 
spiritual death became the order of the day. Not just for Adam and Eve, for the entire human race. And here is one of the key features that you have to begin to understand. That is that Adam in the garden was the representative for the entire human race. That's the way God set it up. God never deals with us merely as individuals, but always as corporate people, okay? He doesn't deal with us even today as merely individuals. Because you, if you are here this morning, and you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, guess what? Your salvation is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon your federal head, the second Adam. That's what the Apostle Paul calls him. We've looked at Romans 5. Marion read that for us. The other passage, if you're jotting down notes in your Bibles, Guy Richardson, one of my professors, always said, I hope you're becoming a marginal Christian. All right? What he meant like that is, I hope you're taking notes. I hope you're writing some little notes. And if you want to do that this morning, one of the notes you probably want to write is 1 Corinthians 15.45. Because there the Apostle Paul says, the first man, Adam, was a, a living being. The second man, Adam, a life-giving spirit. Okay? And so that's where the Apostle Paul highlights these two Adams. And you and I have a solidarity, both with the first Adam in our fall... And if you're here this morning trusting in Christ, your solidarity solidarity is with the second Adam, and that is Jesus Christ. Both your fall and your eternal state are determined not by you, but by your federal head. By the one that you're connected with. We can just begin this morning by asking a question, and you can ponder it for the rest of the sermon. To whom are you connected? Are you connected to Adam in the garden? Are you connected to the second Adam in the garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus? Which one are you connected to today? Which one still holds claim and sway over your life? But the first thing that we see is this spiritual death. God drives them from the garden. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But from the very moment that they they ate from that tree, the image of God in man was dead in trespasses and sins, as the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme of our deadness in Ephesians 2 when he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. David talks about it in Psalm 51 when he says, Surely I was sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Right? So at birth, David said, I'm a sinner. Now that gives rise to a very important question. I love the way R.C. Sproul used to always frame it. He would say, he would ask this question. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or are we... are?" Or do we sin because we're sinners? What is the fundamental nature of your character? What what causes you to sin? Are you a sinner because you go out and sin? Or do you sin because the makeup of your heart is that of a sinner? Because you have a sin nature. You see the importance of the question. And so 
what we learn right here at the beginning in the book of Genesis is that we are sinners because we have a sin nature. We were born with it. And Adam and Eve, when they fell, they plunged the entire human race into this situation. It's what we call original sin. The doctrine of original sin is not the original sin being Adam and Eve in the garden, but that you and I are born with a sin nature given to us by the actions of our first parents. Here's the second thing. There's a physical death. Adam and Eve entered the world, and when they did, their lives uh, from the fall and our lives as we are born are basically a prolonged period of dying. We are all headed now towards the grave. It, listen, when you go to a funeral, I read an article just recently talking about the celebrations of life that we, that we now call funerals. Celebrations of life. An attempt to take, right? An event that is terribly sorrowful. Death is incredibly sorrowful. Y'all know I'm a chaplain in the Air National Guard in Mississippi. And, um, and, I'm, and, and I do want you to understand and know a little bit of what happens in that from time to time. I got a call yesterday evening that one of our young airmen from one of my units was killed in a car crash, 20 years old. And his commander called me and she told me about his death. And I could hear on the other end, listen, in those circles, in my circles in the military, when death happens, it rocks their world because lots of them are not affiliated with churches. Many times it'll be the first time they've ever known someone that has died terribly sorrowful. Why? Because God didn't create us to die. And funerals are, are moments in, in the life of, for us, in the life of a church where we go and we mourn. We mourn this fallenness. We mourn this deadness. We mourn that this even happens. But it happens because Adam and Eve plunged the entirety of the human race into sin. And therefore, spiritual death and physical death. All human existence is now characterized by suffering, disease, and pain. Now, think about that. Spiritual death. No moral goodness in us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one who does good, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after the righteousness of God. No one. By their own design, their own device, no human being will go after God, will follow after Him, will pursue Him. Because we're morally, spiritually, Dead. Now what does that mean? Let's think a little bit further about some of the implications, right? Here's the first thing. This is what it doesn't mean. Because Adam and Eve plunged the whole human race into sin, that doesn't mean that there's nothing left in us. That doesn't mean that we're just completely bankrupt. What did we see last week? You and I were made what? In the image of God. That image remains. 
even in the fall, even though you and I are born into sin, the image of God remains in us. And I want to take you to two passages. The first is Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. If you want to look there with me, you'll see this. A warning. It's after the flood. So, the whole human race has been plunged into darkness, into ruin, into despair. The flood happens because God... Um, was extremely disappointed that he created the whole human race. And as you come out of that, there's a warning. And here's the warning. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the, for in the image of God has God made mankind. The image remains. Even in the fall, even though you are morally bankrupt, even though your ability to perceive and know the world around you is broken, even though you will die physically, you are still made in the image of God. So total depravity and the fall of humanity does not mean that the image of God is obliterated in you. It's decimated. It's it's shattered but it's not gone. And so you still have worth, you still have value, even though you may not be trusting in Christ. And so your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, whoever it is that's in your life that you know that is not trusting in Christ, still made in the image of God, tremendous value there. Here's the second verse that you may want to uh, uh, jot down, and that's James chapter 3, verse 9. And there James says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Of course, James talking about the fact that you can't live this way. And he says, with your tongue, you will both praise God and curse man, the very man made in the image and likeness of God. Even though we're fallen, we still are made in the image of God. Very important for us to remember and to apprehend, okay? Here's the second thing. When we think about this fallenness and that we're born into sin, the overarching truth is that we are fallen, corrupted images of God and we are in need of extensive renovation. Moses highlights um, this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, when he talks about the situation in which Adam and Eve are there, their eyes have been opened. It's communicated to us by the notion that they understood now something about themselves that they had not understood Verse 9, the Lord God called to them, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I went and I hid. He was naked. He now understood something about himself. He was aware of his surroundings in ways that he had not been before. And, and what this is, it's symbolic of the fact that the relationship between God and man was broken. He now looked at himself and he realized, oh my goodness, I can't let God see me how? Like this. So I'll go and hide. Whereas before, Adam and Eve were communing with God. It says that God came and he walked in the cool of the day and he was looking for them and they heard him coming. And so they went and they hid from him. Because the relationship was severed. 
And so what does this fall mean? It means that we, our relationship with God is severed. And you and I are born into that severed relationship. It's in need of complete and utter repair. But a full putting back together is needed for us to be right with God. That brokenness in the relationship, <clears throat> that brokenness is highlighted all the way through the rest of the book of Genesis. That's one of the things we're going to be looking at. Story after story after story of Individuals called by God and yet broken. Just really messed up. The, the stories in the book of Genesis boggle the mind. But you don't need Genesis, do you? You and I probably don't need Genesis to remind us of how screwed up the world is that we live in. Dwight L. Moody got it pretty well right, didn't he? That... His own situation, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I know. How about just look, evaluate your own life, your own heart, think about who you are, and perhaps you can understand the severed nature of that relationship. But, even though that's the world we live in, even though things are difficult, even though there's broken relationship, God has put restraints in place. Theologians call this the common God's common grace. There's this common grace that keeps us from sliding into complete and utter ruin. Primarily, it's the law. One of the reasons that God gave the law to us is that it restrains evil. It's written upon your heart, and so it has this, even when you're not in even when you're not in union with God, even when you're not in Christ, that law is written on your heart, and so there's a, a restraining aspect to God's law. It does restrain evil. And then he's given to us governmental bodies who restrain evil and help keeping us from completely sliding into ruin. That's why the rule of law is so important. You go to a place where there's no rule of law, where anarchy you know, rules and reigns, that is a very difficult place to exist. And so God has these common grace aspects that are in place that keep us from becoming as bad as we could be. Because think about it. If we're born, as David says, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, we're born and there's no good in us, as Paul says in Romans 3, then it would be very easy to see us slide into complete and utter moral decay. And certainly, down through history, there are figures more despicable, more evil than others. Right? I mean, just in the modern era, just in the 20th century, you can think of Hitler, Pol Pot, you know, more recently, people like Saddam Hussein, the massacre in Tiananmen Square in China. I mean, you can think of, you know, Rwanda. There are all sorts of you know, people doing just heinous things. But we're not all there. And so there's this common grace factor that God has not let us become as bad as we could be. But we're broken. Our thinking, the way we think about the world, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Here's the reality. 
what you know about the world isn't altogether right. What you think about the world isn't altogether right. What, set, what, what the best scientist in the lab learns, there's still more yet he doesn't know. There's still something yet to research. Did anybody here just recently, I think they added three new elements to the periodic table. We don't know all that we don't know all there is to know about the world we live in. And what we do know about the world we live in isn't altogether right. You know this. You know this from basic working of your relationships. How many times you have you thought that you understood a particular situation only to find out later it wasn't the situation at all? Right? I had a guy ask me one time, um, I, I, didn't come, I didn't come into the office on a certain day at a certain time, and so he asked me about it. He said, well, you know, why aren't you working? The assumption that he had in his brain was that I wasn't working, when the reality was I went to a different spot in that morning and I had coffee and I read over the, whatever material it was that I was working on for my sermon that week. His perception of reality was not correct. How many times have you had your perception of reality not be true? All the time. Because you don't know everything. And when you do know something, many times you don't know it to be the absolute truth. That's a product of the fall. Adam and Eve, what they knew in the garden, they knew perfectly before the fall. They didn't know everything, but what they did know, they knew it perfectly. Here's the second thing. Our will is broken. Jesus said, John chapter 8, verse 24, Verily, uh, uh, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He's talking about the nature of that will, right? A, A Broken, and what he's saying, the, the actual uh, usage there would be everyone who continues sinning unabated is a slave to sin. It means that sin nature is the operating factor, and that's a product of the fall. And lastly, our affections are broken. The way that we feel and think about the world in which we live in is broken. We can talk about it empirically. You know it to be true from your own lives, from reading the paper and watching the news. The world is broken. Listen, uh, R.C. used to say that if we are born as blank slates, okay, let's just say that it's not true that we're born into sin. Let's put that over here. Let's say it's a product of the decisions we make. Then wouldn't you expect that about half the human race, because most uh, you know, there's about 50% female, 50% male. About Things just seem to happen. If you flip a penny, okay, if the, if the only two options are good and bad, then what you would expect in the human race is you'd expect to see about 50% of the people making good decisions and about 50% of the people making bad decisions. Is that what you see? Empirically, is that the world you see? Not the world I see. It's not the world the Bible tells us about. And so we understand that we're broken, and that Adam and Eve's original sin in the garden had a, original effects upon the entire human race. Now let's ask another question. <clears throat> what about our jobs? 
Because remember, we talked about a couple of weeks ago that God created us to do two things. What are those two things? Multiply and have dominion. Those are the two things that God has called us to. Now let's ask a question. Are those affected by the fall? Yes. Let's look at the text, okay? Part of the curse is that those are now altered. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay? So the multiplication aspect now has been thwarted. It's difficult. It's painful. Labor is painful. Both bearing children and what? Raising children. Okay? The transference of that image, the true image of God to children is incredibly painful. It's not just the birthing process. It's the life process. Raising children in the world is difficult. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, raising their children would have been a piece of cake. It would have been exactly like you and I think it is. Input A and B and out pops C. We want, we want everything to be formulaic. You know, there's a story that's told, you know, there's two moms talking and they're visiting and one of them says, I just don't understand what the big deal is. My, my, I, this whole child rearing thing's not such a big deal. And the mom says, how old's your kid? Six weeks. Just wait. Right? You put a bottle, they, you know, whatever. It's very, you know, very regimented. Even as you grow, you, things can kind of are somewhat, but then they start thinking. They start living like you and acting like you live, replicating our sin. And you realize it's, it's not formulaic at all. It's covenantal. There's a process there God's given to us, but it isn't at all um, you know, input A, input B, and outcome C. So the process of multiplication is thwarted. There's a curse associated with the fall, and it has to do both with multiplication and it has to do with dominion. Because if you look a little bit further down, what happens? What happens is he said to Adam, verse 17, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. What? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By your sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam will work the ground until he dies. And his working of the ground will produce not just the crop that he intended, but all of the mess and junk. Dominion was thwarted. It's fallen. It's broken. It's not this, it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy process any longer. We're pretty, we've gotten good at it, but it's still very challenging. We've created lots of machinery and we've created processes that allow the, 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 the job somewhat to become easier. But listen, let me ask you, is there a, there, there may be, I don't know. How many jobs do you know that don't involve interacting with other human beings? Very few. Where's the most trouble? 
It's not on a farm putting corn seed in the ground. It's with the, the workers that are harvesting and planting and all of that sort of thing. Back in Yazoo City, all of my farmers, their greatest trouble was with the people they worked with. And, and your greatest troubles in life aren't, it's not the paper coming out of the copy machine. It's not investments. It's people. Always people. And so the, the job of our dominion over creation is broken and now is quite difficult for us. There's an added part to this curse. And you see it there when he tells the woman that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Problems in our marriages are difficult because of who we are and because of the fall. Um, sometimes I have known people who have said, you know, my wife and I have never had a problem, and I don't believe them for one minute. Because the text tells us that the wife will try to be, she desires and longs for the role the husband has, and the husband longs to put her in her place. And so those two are constantly battling late tectonic plates. And we know that experientially, most of us, if you're married, you know it to be true. It's true in my life. My Jody's vigorously nodding. And it'll be true in yours. If you're married, you know it. If you're going to be married, you'll know it. If you have been married, you know it as well. And so every person in every part of our function has been affected by the fall. Isn't that terribly depressing? It is. It's terribly disheartening because we know it all to be true. We, we want to bury our heads in the sand sometimes. We don't like it. It's discouraging. But guess what? There's hope. And the hope is right here in the text. You look at it, the first part of it appears in Genesis 3.15. Here's the note of hope. He's talking to the serpent. He's talking to the evil one. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It goes from the greater. It goes from the fact that there is going to be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to be enmity. There's going to be a long-standing battle between the two. And it's going to play out. But then he gets very specific. And he says, there will be one. One of her seed will come. And that one will crush your head. Remember, he's talking to a serpent. Will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who gets the better end of that deal? Yeah, the one. The one to come, because he's going to crush the serpent once for all. The Apostle Paul briefly alludes to this in Romans chapter 16. That serpent will have his head crushed by one who will come from the woman. So, ultimately, in the line of the seed of the woman, there's going to be one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. And that serpent will strike his heel, not a deadly blow, Not a life-altering blow, but a blow that's painful. And obviously we know the cross to be painful. But then there's one more encouraging aspect, and that is in verse 21. 
that in this part of the curse, as Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, and when they're driven out of the garden, they're driven away from paradise. They're driven away from this relationship. They're driven away from the place where God comes to walk in the cool of the day. And so it's, it's, it, it's significant in that they're being driven from the presence of God. So he drives them out, and he puts the cherubim there with the flaming sword. But in that process, what does it say in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21? It says that the Lord God clothed Adam and Eve in animal garments, and, it, and he sent them out. They say, oh, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that it's a picture for us. It, it was very practical, God taking care of a need, because now what are they? Remember? They're naked. And so they have a very real situation. They're naked, and he's driving them out of paradise, and he's driving them out there where they're going to have to live and do all their stuff, where they're going to have to go out and provide. And as he's driving them out, he's providing for their nakedness. And it's a picture, isn't it? Something has to happen there in order for him to, in order for God to get animal skins, he has to do what? He has to kill an animal. It's an early picture of a, of God's, of the sacrificial system that is coming and will ultimately cultivate, uh, uh, culminate in the, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, and that is Christ giving himself for us. The ultimate provision. And so it's a picture looking down the tunnel of God's ultimate provision for his people. God provided for their nakedness. God has provided for your nakedness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your greatest need now is not clothing. Your greatest need is the righteousness of Christ. And Martin Luther always talked about it as a robe of righteousness, a clothing, uh, a robe in which the righteousness of Christ is placed over you. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see your works. He sees the works of the one given for you. Some of you know, and are probably sitting there going, why didn't he talk about, because there's a million other things we could talk about from Genesis 3. But I want you to leave this morning knowing and understanding that the Bible teaches original sin. And the Bible teaches the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That God will provide for your sin and my sin through the righteousness of one, the person of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word and for the hope that it entails. This morning was a dark and sorrowful picture of the sin of our first parents with notes of hope. Reminders that... Even though our first father, Adam, plunged us all into sin, you did not let us remain there, and you came for the rescue. And so we praise you and we thank you. And Father, we long more and more to see the sin nature that resides within us put to death, and all of it, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing our final hymn.